Well, hello again. We're going to be continuing our study in Paul's letter to the Galatians. So if you want to turn there, Galatians 3, verse 15. If you're using the Pew Bible, that should be on page 944, I believe. We're in this middle section of this letter. I've tried to explain one way you can frame the letter to the Galatians is the first two chapters is the historical section, giving uh, Paul's personal history of his call to gospel ministry. The middle two chapters of three and four is the theological section where Paul makes the, the heartbeat of his argument against the agitators there uh, for those who are agitating or stirring up the churches in Galatia to a false gospel. And then in chapters 5 and 6, you kind of see the ethical portion, or you might call the application section, where Paul seeks to then apply some of those truths that he's been speaking. So we are still in the midst of this theological section, where Paul is really just hammering home one argument, is that all the promises given to Abraham do not come via the mechanism of the law, as the false teachers were teaching, but they come through Christ. And that's essentially what we're going to see yet again this week. Uh, but we will try to keep our fingers close in the text with Paul as he makes this argument. One last note is that on the little card, the sermon card, uh, it says that we're going to stop at verse 25 this week. Well, we're going to finish the end of the chapter, but we'll look at 26 through 29 again next week as well, because those verses are really a hinge. So if you would read with me, <clears throat> Galatians 3, 15 through 29. Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it no longer depends on the promise. But God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. Well, why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. Well, a mediator, however, implies more than one party. But God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might not be, so that we might be justified by faith. And now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Well, this is the word of the Lord. 
there is much Christian and non-Christian literature which lays down what I would say is an axiom, a truth, and it is this, that promises, prophecies, and providence only make sense in hindsight. Divine promises, prophecies, and providence only make sense in hindsight, at least in the full scope. Let me give you an example from ancient Greek literature. How many of you remember Sophocles' story, Oedipus the King? Uh, If you haven't read it, it was told as a kind of ancient murder mystery political thriller. I suggest it, although after I explain it, you might not be interested. Uh, The play opens with Oedipus the King. He's the king of Thebes. And he's seeking to put an end to a plague that had come upon his people. And so he had sent off his brother to go and seek the oracle. Well, the oracle instructs his brother to find the man who murdered the previous king that Oedipus had taken over for. You see, when Oedipus arrived, he married the widow of the former king and it helped to rejuvenate this dying city. And Oedipus now gets the answer from the oracle that he needs to find the one who killed the previous king. But as this goes on, he also asks for the old blind prophet to come in and and help him out, and the old blind prophet says, you are the man. You killed the king, and Oedipus is livid about this. And he goes to finally seek his wife, Jocasta, to ask for her information and, and trying to help him know how to navigate these things. And she says, don't worry about prophets. They're always wrong. Years ago, I had a prophecy when I was pregnant, and it said that my son was going to grow up and kill my husband, but my son died in childbirth, and my husband was killed by robbers at a crossroad. Well, that at a crossroad rung a little bell for Oedipus, because as he was on his way to Thebes, he had killed a man at a crossroads. Well, then all of a sudden, he gets one more prophecy that he's going to have an incestuous relationship with his mother, potentially. You start to put the pieces together. It was, in fact, the case that he was actually born to Jocasta, and he was carted off and handed to some shepherds so that way the prophecy wouldn't come true. But promises, prophecy, and providence is only clearly understood in hindsight, and the play devolves from there. Well, the reason I think that's important is because even secular literature had this understanding. If there's a relationship between divine and human, then there's a sense in which divine can tell you things which are not fully going to make sense until they happen. And we could dig into Scripture and look at a myriad of examples of prophecies which did not make sense until they were fulfilled. None of the twelve who had walked with Jesus for three years, who listened to him five times in Matthew's gospel say, I'm going to my death in Jerusalem, and three days later I will rise. None of them as he was on the cross on Friday, nudged a friend and said, just wait till Sunday. No promises, prophecy, and providence is only understood in hindsight. And that's what we'll see this morning with our passage, that Paul is going to say the promises made to Abraham, be careful of how you interpret them, because they only make full sense with the benefit of hindsight. So our title for this morning is Heirs with Christ, and we'll walk through this passage with three points, the seed, the guardian, and the inheritance. And the argument is simple. It's this, only those united to Christ by faith are heirs of the promises of Abraham. Once again, only those united to Christ by faith are heirs of the promises to Abraham. Well, first, the seed. Paul bases his argument here 
on responding to the agitators, as we've said. And so what it seems was taking place was that the agitators were telling these churches in Galatia that if they really wanted to be true Christians, they needed to be sons of Abraham and inherit the promises of Abraham. And the only way that could happen was if they obeyed the Mosaic law. That's the argument that clearly Paul is combating here. Now, it's interesting is that that was actually a rather common thought, in, uh, common theme in Jewish theology. Uh, one theologian has noted, Jewish theology generally viewed the Abrahamic covenant with the requirement of circumcision as being the first stage. And then the Mosaic covenant came through with its later expanded laws as kind of the second stage or the fuller part of the Abrahamic covenant. So the argument that the agitators were making that, well, of course you have to obey the Mosaic law if you want to be children of Abraham, it would have made intuitive sense. Uh, They would have just naturally kind of seen, oh, okay, because that would have been in the air. But this is why Paul had said there's only one gospel, and it's the one that he preached. Uh, There's no intermingling of this gospel with the Jewish law or Jewish theology that had been played around. So the logic of their argument seemed very tight. Of course, people would have to obey the Mosaic Covenant if they wanted to be the true children of Abraham. What's fascinating, though, about their argument, which might be lost on some of us, depending upon the church circles you've run in, is this. Notice, Paul doesn't address any issue of people of different ethnicity being the children of Abraham. It was taken for granted. Anybody could have been the child of Abraham. This is not an issue. For the churches in Galatia, the hook was you just had to obey Moses to be a child of Abraham. But it wasn't an ethnic category. That's just not how it worked. Because Paul doesn't even address it. They just know, clearly. The basis for becoming a child of Abraham, according to them, was that you had to obey the law. And that is what Paul is going to combat here. He rejects that reading. And he's going to go back, as he did last week, and reread the Old Testament and give us the true argument. As Chip helpfully said, what does Scripture say? Paul is going to go back to Genesis and the promises made to Abraham. And that's precisely what he does. He is going to go back and reread the promises. Now, I mentioned last week there were three promises that's often said given to Abraham. Land, seed, and blessing. Last week, in the first half of this chapter, Paul said the blessing was fulfilled in Christ because he took the curse for us. Well, in this chapter and the next, the rest, we're going to see that he says the land and seed promises are also fulfilled in Christ. Let me show you how he does this. Look again at verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say unto seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. Well, what is Paul doing here? I mean, that doesn't seem quite right, does it? Anybody who's read Genesis knows that the promise is for Abraham to have so many kids, it won't even match with the stars. That's what kind of gets him into trouble, does it not? So there are unquestionably places in the book of Genesis where the promise of seed is plural. So what is Paul doing? Is he playing fast and loose with the text? No, I don't think so. I think what Paul is doing is he's reading the promise to Abraham within the larger arc of the book of Genesis. The context of the whole book unfolding is what shapes his understanding of this promised seed. 
Uh, here's why. What we see is if you keep going in 17 and 18, what he says is this, a later covenant cannot annul or change an earlier covenant. And he applies that to Moses. Moses came 430 years later. He can't get rid of or change the promise that came earlier to Abraham, right? Well, in Paul's logic, there's one other covenant that came before Abraham, actually two. And the main one is promise to Adam. Uh, if you go back to the beginning, God created Adam and Eve in his image to be in relationship with him. And remember, a covenant is just a means that God uses to be in relationship with his people. Well, Hosea 6-7 tells us how Adam violated the covenant. He, he broke that relationship. He did not obey God. And so they were removed from the garden. But right there, when they were removed from the garden in Genesis 3, what happened? Well, God made a promise. He made a promise that Eve would bear a seed, a son, who would crush the head of the serpent. Ah, do you see now? The earlier covenant cannot be changed by a later covenant. God's promise from the beginning was that a son would come, and a son would crush the head of the serpent. And Paul, seeing this in the larger flow of Genesis, says the promise to Abraham, of course, was to get to the son, the seed, which is why Paul can write. The promise was not about seeds, plural. It was about the seed, the same seed who was promised to Adam and Eve is the same seed that was promised to Abraham, the singular seed. That's how Paul's argument is turning. A later covenant can't change an earlier covenant. So the promise then was always aiming at that true son who would crush the serpent, that singular seed. So anyone who has carefully read Genesis should have seen this was God's plan. From the beginning, God planned a son, and he promised that that son would come through Adam, and then through Noah, and then through Abraham, and later through David. Or we could put it this way. Promises, prophecy, and providence are only understood in hindsight. When you see how they're fulfilled. Well, of course you needed the plural seed to get to the singular seed. We'll come back to that in the next point. But the promise was always about the seed. That's what Paul says. Or maybe put it one more way. The Bible is kind of like a middle school math book. The answers are at the back. Seriously. The answers are at the back of the book. You're meant to go to the back of the book and see how these things were fulfilled and go back and understand it. Why? Well, because, friends, as I said last week, Paul is a far better Bible reader than we are. So much so, he's inspired. So we have to learn his interpretation. So practically speaking, as, as Chip served us so well in his prayer, we must be those who continue to read and reread the Bible. Uh, to continue to be those who learn to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And one of the ways we do this is that we have to engage with people who don't think quite like we do. Uh, again, I, if you're anything like me, once you see something some way, it's really hard to see it another way. You need somebody else to ask questions and to poke and prod and, and help you to rethink. Maybe there's another way this could be understood. And one theologian has put it well. If the primary and essential means by which the Spirit sanctifies God's people is through the Word, then we need to use every tool we can to better understand the Word, to better read it. We're all finite people. And we all come from certain traditions and backgrounds, and we're all going to have certain bents and slants. 
And so we have to have the help of others. And as I said last week, sometimes that might be the help of church history and reading those who've come before us or from those who just don't see things the way that we do. Uh, Let me use a personal example of how I've tried to live this out in my life. So if if you've spent any time with me, you know I'm a very reformed fellow. I've been very clear about this. I believe in God's absolute sovereignty in salvation. Uh, There's nothing we do or add or help or aid. He saves. He makes alive. He takes hearts of stone and he gives hearts of flesh. All the metaphors of salvation are explicitly showing us that. You can't do heart surgery on yourself. Uh, You didn't cause your birth. You can't cause your rebirth. You didn't cause your creation. You cannot cause your recreation. So again, I am entirely convinced of this understanding of how sovereignty works in the relationship to salvation. But even though I am totally convinced of this understanding, I try to engage with a book a year from people who disagree with me. I'm reading a big 500-page tome written by some dear Christian brothers who see things completely different and are attacking the view that I love and hold to. I'd rather read so much other stuff than this. But this is how you get sharpened. You have to engage with people who are going to push you to think differently. Again, iron has to sharpen iron. So so I'm going to try and listen to them and try and do so charitably. Uh, If our sanctification is bound up with a better understanding of the word than any port in the storm, I want to understand the word. Even if that means reading people who, frankly, make me a little crazy when I read this book. But friends, we all have blind spots, and so we need others to push us and to prod us. Uh, Christians, we should be scared of getting to a place where we are so comfortable with how we put things together that we're unwilling to listen to anybody else. That's not a good place for Christians to be. We need to be those who are sharpened, and that oftentimes requires someone else showing us how to go back and reread and allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So Paul does that for them here. He says that the promise to Abraham was about the seed. Now, no Jew would have agreed with that. (laughs) They would have all said, no, the promise to Abraham was about us. We are the promise to Abraham. And Paul says, no, 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 the promise. Uh, You might say that the point, the sharp edge of the knife promise was always only driving at the seed who was promised to Adam, and again to Abraham, and finally to David, and fulfilled in Christ. So that is the seed. Now we come to the next part of Paul's argument, where he shows us how the law can never fulfill the promises given to Abraham. Look again at verses 19 through 25. Why then was the law given at all? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party. But God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. And now the faith has come. We are no longer under 
a guardian. Uh, So notice how Paul's argument unfolds. His first conclusion is this. The promise made to Abraham has no dependence upon the Mosaic law. Pretty straightforward. Uh, There is no way the law could. He's going to go on to say, well, if there was a law that could fulfill the promise, yeah, sure. If righteousness could come through a law, then that kind of law would have been given. But that's not the way the law works. Uh, It's been well said, the law is like a mirror. It, It only shows you what's there. It cannot create a new reality. And that's what is precisely needed. But if the law then cannot actually fulfill the promise, then the natural question arises. Well, then why the law was given at all? (laughs) What purpose does the law serve if it can't actually fulfill the promise? And Paul explains, well, it was added because of transgression until the seed to whom the promise was given would come. So we can put it this way. The Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic law was a parenthesis. It was always only temporary. God gave it for a specific period of time. From that time at Sinai until the seed. Right? That's what he says. And until the seed to whom the promise, meaning the promise of Abraham, was given. So the promise of Abraham was ultimately given to Christ, we've seen. And the Mosaic law serves this parenthesis. Now, verses 19 and 20 here are pretty disputed. Uh, There are an incredible number of interpretations about what do you make with this, uh, the law given by an angel, and then there's mediators, but God is one. Uh, Well, you can say at one level, in Acts 7, Stephen tells us during his speech the same thing, that the the law was given by angels. So, So we know that. Now, you wouldn't get that necessarily by reading Exodus, but again, the Bible's like a math book. The answers are at the back. So we allow the New Testament to give us light and interpretation of the Old Testament. But what that has to do with anything as far as the angels giving the law, I don't know. It's really challenging, which is why there's so many interpretations. What are you supposed to do? Well, there's three kind of major categories of dealing with this question of this law and of one versus the mediator. Here's the three groupings. First, perhaps Paul is simply showing them that since God gave the promise directly to Abraham, it was superior to the law which was mediated. That's a, that's a very reasonable explanation. Many hold to that view. Others say that there's a little, something a little sharper going on and that the focus on the mediator means that there's two parties. So whereas a promise is one-sided, if I promise you something, I'm the one who's going to give it. Whereas if there's a mediator, there's a legal thing going on there. And so there has to be reciprocation. Again, that, that could be as well. And then others connect the fact that this one here, this one God, speaks of there's one seed. And so there can only be one mediator. can't be Moses. It has to be Christ. Whichever view you take, it doesn't change the larger point of Paul's argument. All the views have strengths and weaknesses. But the point is quite clear. The larger issue is the law cannot fulfill the promise. It, it wasn't built for that. So then Paul asks the next question. Is the law opposed to God's promise? Well, absolutely not. The law served its specific purpose. Now, some Christians, and depending upon your background, you might have heard this, that the law is the eternal moral law of God. But that's not how Paul sees the Mosaic Covenant. He says it was a parenthesis. It served a purpose. And he goes on to explain it was a guardian. It kept them in line. Uh, In the Greco-Roman world, the guardians were oftentimes slaves or servants, but they lived with the child, and 24-7, they took this child to school and from school. They made them do their homework. They made them eat. They made them sleep. 
They did everything and hedged them in. The law was that for the nation of Israel. So at the simplest level, what Paul's argument here is simply the law was temporary. It served a purpose. It kept them in line until Christ came. Did you notice all three paragraphs end, until the promised seed comes, until the promised seed comes. That was the purpose of the law. It was a stopgap. However, I think there might be one other piece of the law that is worth considering, particularly thinking back through the Abrahamic story. Since the promise was until the seed came, you have to think through this. What was Abraham's story like? God calls Abraham. He was a moon-worshipping pagan. He calls him out of Ur of the Chaldees, right? And he shows up there, and God says, I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless the world through you. But Abraham, a man of faith, sometimes stumbled like the rest of us. And so he says, oh, this is my sister, and she's taken by an opposing king. He does it twice, both times threatening the fact that perhaps the promised seed would not be able to come from Abraham and Sarah. Well, then Sarah gets impatient. She gives Hagar to Abraham and says, here, have a child this way. Notice, they're trying to help God fulfill his promise. And that will be picked up by Paul in the next chapter, so we'll come back to that later. But notice, in the flow of the story of Abraham, then, this promise of the seed is constantly at risk by Abraham and Sarah themselves. They're the problem. So what if the law, part of its job, was to keep the line of Abraham and Sarah pure? To keep the plural seed, people of Abraham, pure until the singular seed came. I think you see this played out in the holiness laws. The reason why there was the holiness code, the separateness of God's people. Why they had to eat weird food. They couldn't have bacon. All those types of things. Part of it was to keep them distinct and separate. And they were explicitly told they couldn't intermarry with other tribes. So important is this, actually, that if you keep reading in the Old Testament and you get to the book of Ezra in chapter 9 and 10, something stunning happens. Judah has come back from exile, and they start to intermarry with the other tribes. Ezra shows up, and in Ezra 9 and 10, Ezra basically says, you divorce those wives, you put them away, and their children. Now, now that just strikes us as really horrible. But notice what they're doing. They're doing the same thing that Abraham had to do with Hagar and the child. So see what the law does? It kept the line pure until the seed came. It guarded them. It hedged them in. It kept them Abraham's seed until Abraham's true seed could come. I think that's what we're seeing here, that it's until the promised seed. That's what it did. Well, here's why this is important. Because if you catch the pronouns... This section isn't even to us. It's to Jewish Christians. Did you see the pronouns? Before the coming of this faith, verse 23, we were held in custody under the law. Well, I was never under the Mosaic law, and neither were you. The law was our guardian. The law wasn't our guardian. This is written to Jewish Christians. So, then the question is this, well, what about the rest of us? <laughs> if, if we're not under the law, then why does it matter? Well, remember, the Psalms tell us the heavens declare the glory of God. Elsewhere, we can read that everybody who's ever lived in this world knows God exists. We're morally culpable before him. General revelation in itself causes all of us to stand before God and give an account 
And elsewhere, Paul will say that if you act as though you know the law, then you have a law in your heart. Or we use the modern category of conscience. Everyone has a conscience. And we could look at many passages that deal with this idea of having a conscience. But friend, everybody who's ever been lived in this world has been created in God's image. And so they have a conscience. So if you're visiting with us this morning and you're not a Christian, I wonder if maybe the reason you're here is because your conscience is prodding you. If it's showing you that something's not quite right, that, that would be a sign that, no, you are never under the law, but you are under God's rule, his sovereign rule. And if that is you, I imagine at least part of the reason why you're visiting is because you know that something's not quite right. Well, that is our conscience at work. But the challenge is this, the reason we can't trust our conscience alone is because we live in a broken world. And we've all heard stories about people who have seared their conscience, gotten to a point where they believe things that are just untrue. They believe and do things that are just wrong. So the conscience cannot actually guide us. Very much like the external law of Moses, the internal law or conscience is not enough to save us. If you want to learn more about this, I, I recommend a great book by Andrew Nacelli and J.D. Crowley called Conscience. It's a very helpful read on this topic. But here's why I bring this up. Friends, if that's you this morning and, and you're wrestling through something, you see, in Portland, many people will give you this answer. They'll say, you just need to be a good person. Notice, they're saying your conscience needs to be your guide, as Pinocchio may put it. But the problem, of course, is what, what defines good? If you've ever done any reading in world history, there are other cultures and times which said things were good, which we would find reprehensible. We need something outside of ourselves, a law without, to guide us. So whether that law is for Jews under the Mosaic Covenant or for all the rest of us who have a conscience, the bottom line is this. None of that can bring the promise. Internal law, external law, it doesn't matter. Paul says it only can lead to destruction. So notice his argument then. Paul says this promise to Abraham comes to those who have faith, not by keeping the law. Which means that all the promises of God are driving us to Christ. Uh, last week I mentioned the Ohio River. It dumps into the Mississippi. It's the second largest river by volume. And the moment it dumps into the river Mississippi, you can't break it apart anymore. There's no figuring out, well, which water molecules are from the Ohio and which aren't. No, it's reached its goal. So what Paul's point is this, Adam and Eve, the promises given to them, the seed and son, they reached their goal in Christ. The promised seed to Abraham reached his goal in Christ. And even the Mosaic law was until the promised seed came. But then he makes this comment about the inheritance. Did you catch that? What about our last point? The inheritance, look at verses 26 through 29. So in Christ Jesus, you all are children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. So the NIV gives us so in verse 26. It's, it's for, it's grounding his argument up to this point. And the pronouns shift to you all. So now he's speaking to everybody, Jew, Gentile, does not matter. All of those of faith. 
Now, Lord willing, we'll come back to these verses and consider more this conversation about being baptized into Christ next week. But for now, he says it's being clothed with Christ, or the term is union with Christ. But here's the reason why this section is so stunning. If Jesus is the true seed of Abraham, then all of those who've been united to Christ are now the true seeds of Abraham. That's what he says. And they're the heirs, the inheritors. All those united to Christ and only those united to Christ get to have the label the children of Abraham, the heirs of the promise. Because Jesus is the true seed, all those united to him are now the true seed. And all the promises to Abraham can only be realized in Christ. Then in verse 28, he says something that would have been rather shocking. There is no more distinction. Uh, there's no ethnic distinction. There's, there's no gender distinction. There's no socioeconomic distinction. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. Slave nor free, male nor female. The only way that anybody gets to claim to be an heir and a child of Abraham is through faith. That's the only thing that matters. So now, maybe if you've grown up in certain circles and you're familiar with Romans 11 and this promise of a bunch of Israelites being saved, you say, well, how does that work? What, what is playing out here? Well, Paul's point is that they are ethnically Jewish. And in Romans 11, when God saves them, they will be true children of Abraham because they're not true children of Abraham right now. Only those united to Christ by faith are the true children and the inheritors. Did you catch how both verse 18 and 29 speak of the inheritance? Look again at verse 18. For if the inheritance depended on the law, then it no longer depended, or depends on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. So what is this inheritance? Well, in the Old Testament, the inheritance is the land. That's what was promised. Go and read all the passages, particularly in Joshua. Tons of passages which speak of inheriting the land. Then there's a few places where it hints around that maybe it wasn't only the land of Palestine. That maybe it was a global promise. Isaiah 19 speaks of a highway that will run from Assyria to Egypt through Israel. Earlier in the service, Chip read for us Romans 4. 13, which says this, It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. Did you catch that? Paul says Abraham was going to inherit the world. He didn't say anything about Palestine. He's globalized the promise because that's what the prophets do as well. And Paul makes this a statement and nobody questions it. There's no pushback. He doesn't have to clarify his argument. He says, no, the promise was always global. It was always meant to be an inheritance of the whole world. Now, you wouldn't get that by reading Genesis. But you get that because the answers are at the back of the book. Let me show you this in another place because I think this is so important. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 16. If you're using the Pew Bibles, that'll be on page 974. So the author of Hebrews is making the same point that Paul is here, that the promise given to Abraham, the inheritance, was always going to be far more than just the land in Palestine, okay? So in verses uh, Hebrew 11, 8 through 16, we, we read of Abraham and him leaving his native land, right? Start at verse 9. 
By faith, he, Abraham, made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. So we're talking about the same thing. But now look at verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. The New Testament authors tell us how to understand the Abrahamic promise. Abraham was always looking beyond the land. In fact, the the author is going to keep going. Uh, Look at verses 13 through 16, talking about those who came after Abraham. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Do you see? The New Testament authors say that the promise, the inheritance, was always far more than just that land. That's why Hebrews 13, 14 is going to say, we do not have an enduring city here. We're looking to the city which is to come. So flip back to Galatians 3, and we'll try to tie these threads together. So Paul has shown us how the promise was always to Jesus, the true seed, but that we who are united to Christ by faith are now the inheritors of that very promise. And only those united to Christ by faith are the ones who will inherit this promise. See, the friend. The answers are at the back of the book. Jesus is the true seed. He is the reason we get the inheritance because we're united to him. He is the one who gives us access to the heavenly city. The one we read about which says there is no temple in that city. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. You see the point? The ultimate fulfillment of all the promises of Abraham, land, seed, and blessing, is Jesus. It's to be with him. God is the inheritance. Over and over again, God promised them in the Old Testament, I will be your God and you will be my people. And over and over again, they failed. We needed a covenant that was better, that was perfect. We needed a covenant that rested on eternal promises. And so God sent his son. Oh, the, the son promised to Abraham, And the son promised to Adam. He he sent him to be the true seed who would come and crush the head of the serpent. But the serpent struck his heel. And now all those who are united to him by faith, they are the heirs of all the promises of Abraham. Or we might put it like this. Paul is still saying what he said back in chapter 1. That friends, Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Uh, To look at the Abrahamic promises and to try and look around Jesus or beyond Jesus is to misread the promises. There's no other blessing. There's no other inheritance. There's no other seed. That's why verse 29 has an if-then argument. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. A friend is pushing on us. Do you? belong to Christ? Are you an inheritor of the promise? When you read Abraham, 
Do you say, thank you, Jesus, this was for me? Because it all drives to him and all those united to him. You see, I open the sermon by saying that promises, prophecy, and providence are only fully understood in hindsight. And that's what Paul is showing us here. We've arrived at the back of the book, at the answer key. So now we get to go reread the promises and see how they all drive us to Christ. So may we never look around Jesus or beyond him. We have to look through him. He is the lens through which we read all the promises of God that find their yes in him. And may we look to him as the fulfillment of our hopes. Because friends, it is only those united to Christ who are heirs and kids of Abraham. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this incredible reality that Jesus really is the centerpiece of all of your plans, that he is to be the one on whom all of our hopes rest. So help us to look to him and through him. Lord, not around him, not for some other fulfillment elsewhere, but to trust that he is enough. We pray all this for Jesus' sake. Amen.